This is the Gospel from Mark, chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, and found on page 850, if you're following along in the Pew, hymn, uh, Pew Bible. It's a familiar enough passage, and it might be interesting to... Uh, work to look on it with fresh eyes, even as though we were in the room there. Mark 14, beginning verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, that man, if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, And gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. And Lord, as with the crescendo of that song, may that blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded our helpless estate. And Lord, it is well with our soul. It is good to be in your house. Change us through the power of your word and the gospel, through Christ, for your glory. Well, whether you are a child or adult this morning, all of us have had the experience of taking a car ride. Think of a long journey. And as you're driving down the road, some 10 minutes into the many hour journey, the question comes from the back seat. Are we there yet? 
And with the emphasis on that commonly repeated phrase, are we there yet? You also have the adult sitting in the front seat who is commonly repeating, though only verbalizing probably half of what he's really repeating in, or she is repeating in their mind. No, not yet. Just enjoy the ride. Well, the child in us or with us in the car knows that the best part of the journey is at the end. After all, that's why we got into the car, to go to a specific place where we are not at at the moment. And the adult even knows that the best is at the end of the journey. But the adult also knows that the journey along the way and the enjoyment of it is what really increases the end destination. So if you just ignore everything that passes by you for those hours, by the time you get to the end, you either are very tired, discouraged, or rather have not made the trip at all. And yet as you enjoy what's going on and what's passing by and what's happening, you are that much more excited for actually the end of the journey. Well, verse 12 through 21 this morning of Mark chapter 14, is very much the journey to the Grand Canyon, if you will. Along the way, we're going to see a lot of beauty in 12 through 21. But the real glory, the real picture, the real means of why we got in the car, the real reason for why we got in the car, is at the end, in verses 22 through 25. In fact, our text is so weighted toward 22 and 25... That it argues for us that the wonder of the work of Christ for us then, now, and to come is to be regularly enjoyed at the Lord's Supper. That the wonder of the work of Christ for us then, now, and to come is to be regularly enjoyed at the Lord's Supper. So let's, before we get to the end destination, let's enjoy the journey for a bit. Now, if you have ever had uh, a long journey to a camping trip, you might have done the unfortunate and taken with you one of those well-known and delicacy of camping an MRE, a meal ready to eat. And everybody has, who has ever had a meal ready to eat, including Bill Klotz, who's currently sticking his tongue out, knows that it is not a meal you want to eat, but it's a meal you are ready to eat. So let's use MRE as an acronym to help us understand this first point. MRE, meal, revealing, and an examination. We will see in 20 through 12 through 21, a meal, a revealing, and an examination. To start our journey this morning, we're not going to look in Mark. We will conclude in Mark, but we're actually going to begin in Exodus. So if you have your Bible on your lap... Or on your phone, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to look for just a few minutes there at the beginning of the journey. Exodus chapter 12, 21 through 28. We find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12 at the final plague. The children of Israel are underneath the the slavery, underneath the bondage of Egypt. And God is preparing to now redeem his people, remove his people from underneath that slavery. And in the process of removing them and establishing them as a nation, 
at least they have grown to that size at this point, he has sent ten plagues. And we are at the tenth here in Exodus 12, the plague of death. So as this plague descends upon the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel, there is a bit of a problem. That is, the firstborn are all going to be killed when this plague of death descends down upon the people. And it will even descend upon the people of Israel. And so God gives them in some instruction on what to do. And he inaugurates the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. If you're in there, look at verse 21 through 28, just in summary. 21 through 28. Then Moses, after receiving instruction from God as to what to do in preparation for this plague, that is, the plague of death, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. That lamb was to be perfect, spotless. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel, the top, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. This was a very simple meal. It was a meal where all the elements were designed to be reminders of what life had been like in Egypt. And it was a meal that had been eaten hundreds, if not thousands of times by the time we get to the book of Mark. The bitter herbs were to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. The stewed fruit had the color and consistency of clay, reminding them of making bricks as slaves. The sacrificed lamb, reminding them of God's gracious passing over of Israel in the plague of death that came to Egypt. And the meal followed a structure, a fairly simple structure, the core being that the Passover prayer over the bread... Passover prayer by the head of the family over the bread and the recitation of the Hallel Psalms, which is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 in your Bible. There would first be this blessing over the bread in its distribution, and that would take place by the head of the family, the father. And then they would drink the first cup of wine. Oftentimes it was watered down and it would be passed around and everyone would drink. The meal was then brought. You had the unleavened bread and you had bitter herbs and greens and stewed fruit and roast lamb. And then a son would ask the question. And we even saw that here in Exodus 12. What's the significance of this? Why are we doing this, Father? Why are we eating this meal? And the family head would then take the time to recount God's redemption of their people from Egypt. 
They would then sing a song and then they would drink the second cup of wine, passing it around. The family head, the father would then break the bread and pass it out to everyone. And all would eat it with the bitter herbs and the stewed fruit. And then it would be followed by the eating of the roasted lamb. After that meal, there would be a third cup of wine with a prayer of thanksgiving. More singing, Psalm 116 through 18. And then finally, a concluding cup, the fourth cup, concluding the Passover. The Passover was simply meant to be a celebration, a remembrance of the flight from Egypt. And it was a family celebration. The father conducted it with his family. It was a simple meal. It was a meal to recall God's past faithfulness to fuel their future faith and faithfulness to God. Reminding them of the fact that God had had mercy and grace and passed over them in judgment. And here we find ourselves in the book of Mark, chapter 14, probably this having taken place thousands of times, and yet this meal would be unlike any of the other times before it. In context, we're at Thursday afternoon. Christ sends out two disciples. We know it's Peter and John from Luke 22. That evening, Thursday evening, would be the meal and the inauguration or the beginning of the coming into Friday morning and Friday evening would be the crucifixion. We're within the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus Christ. The whole city is in a hustle and bustle. We mentioned last week as many as potentially 250,000 people within the city of Jerusalem. And all of them celebrating the Passover. So you can imagine the aroma that just filled the streets as you moved through. Here we have in verse 12 the preparation of the Passover. Christ sends Peter and John with some instructions. Some would say maybe that this is a supernatural event that Christ could see by his power as the Son of God what was going to happen and told them in advance. I tend to think actually Christ planned this. This would be my reasons for doing so. First of all, it was customary for a woman to carry a jar. It would be as if you walked into Fredericksburg this morning and watched a man carry around a purse. That's an unusual sight. A man would carry a water skin. A woman would carry a water jar. So it was a good marker for Peter and John to look for. Second of all, you have really two levels of tension within the city as the scene is being set for us. The first tension presides within the walls of, of Jerusalem. Remember that the, the Passover is being held. We, we saw last week the scribes and the chief priests are plotting and planning the death of Christ. So this Passover that Christ is going to partake isn't something that can be very much of a, a public thing. If it was, the, the, the boisterous nature of Christ's arrival for the Passover would not have been wise concerning the events that are about to transpire in the next 24 hours in the life of Christ. We also know from Luke 22 verse 15 that Christ earnestly, very much, wanted to have this final meal with the disciples. And that brings up the second tension, which is within the 12 disciples. Remember, Christ knows Judas is planning to betray him, but none of the other 11 do at this point. So if Christ was to say, hey everybody, this is where we're going to have the Passover, Judas would know. 
So he sends Peter and John. It would have been the perfect opportunity for Judas to betray Christ, who's looking for that opportunity. We saw that last week in verse 11. Thus Christ takes measures to keep the location secret and allow the divinely ordained timeline of events to work out as God had designed. We've already seen the meal, M-R-E, they prepared. Now let's look at the revealing, verse 18. Remember, no one knew about this planned betrayal, so you can imagine just the warmth of this meal. And then Christ makes this statement in verse 18. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Ever had a time in the middle of a meal where somebody dropped the proverbial bombshell? And all the clinking of glasses and silverware stops. You said, what? The shockwave would have just rolled across the table. This was an intimate meal. He has revealed that the betrayal will happen. One of them, Judas, knows clearly who he's talking about. We've had a meal. We've had a revealing. We have an examination. Notice, they began to be sorrowful, verse 19. And to say to him, one after another, is it I? Christ is calling almost by this revealing for an examination, certainly of Judas, to examine himself. Do you know, do you realize what you are preparing to do? And by extension, he is calling all of the disciples to examine themselves before the meal. And so you can already hear strains of 1 Corinthians 11, where we have the instruction about the Lord's table for the church, where we're called to examine ourselves before we are to take it. And they do. Verse 19. In answer to their examination, verse 20 and 21, Christ speaks a strong word of warning Yet again, to Judas. It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That seems like harsh words from Christ. It almost seems as if it's mean words from Christ. It almost seems as if Christ is just backhand, backstabbing him, is backhanding Judas, when Judas is the only one knows who knows who he's really talking about. But that's not the case at all. I want us to just pause for a moment here and notice the mercy and love of Christ to Judas. At this meal, the way it is set up, and the way we know in the other Gospels how they were positioned around the table, the position of honor was to the left of Christ. That is where Judas was placed. Christ has repeatedly, publicly, and even secretly here, by way of communication, warned Judas. Judas had plenty of reasons to not go through with what he was about to go through. Psalm 55, verse 13 and 14. Christ, we know, is... The word we know is speaking of Judas here. But it is you, a man, speaking of Judas, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. There is not a hint 
of spite or venom in the pronouncement of Christ concerning the woe upon Judas. Christ is simply putting the weight of Judas's actions in the light of God's sovereign plan. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God's sovereignty. When we say the word, when we say the words God's sovereignty, what we mean is God's controlling power over all things. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Goes as God had prescribed and decided that it would go. Go with me to Isaiah 53 in your Bibles. Isaiah 53, we'll just look at a few verses there. But this passage in Mark rings with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is just one of the many passages we could go to that have that has the written plan of God to send the Son of Man to his death. Look with me, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Even Mark 10, verse 45, speaks of this written of the Son of Man, that he will go as has been described. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now what about man's responsibility? What about the responsibility of betrayal? Woe to Judas. That is laid on Judas. It would have been better for that man. If he had not been born. In the light of God's sovereignty. Are we simply saying that Judas is some pawn? He has no control over his actions? No not at all. Judas is not a pawn. There's a word that you need to hear. It's not a word you'll probably hear on the street anytime soon, but it's antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. And it means an appearance of contradictions. It, it, it speaks of two truths. One truth over here and one truth over here that seem to exist in relation to one another and yet they seem to be unrelatable. They even seem to be in opposition to one another. Both are truth. Both stand upon clear and strong evidence of truth. And yet they seem to be negating one another. How does God's sovereignty, his control over all things, somehow also stand with man's responsibility that we can choose things and do things? You have a choice of what you're going to have for lunch today. And you can decide at the last moment, no, I don't want the roast beef. I want the pasta. How do these two things stand in opposition? Seemingly in opposition and yet stand together. God's sovereignty and human responsibility is an antinomy. 
J.R. Packer in his little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, helps us by simplifying what we should do with an antinomy. This is what he says, quote, What should one do then with an antinomy? Accept it for what it is. And learn to live with it. Refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real. Put down the semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding. Think of the two principles not as rivals, but in some way that at present you do not grasp complementary to each other. The English writer G.K. Chesterton, quote, It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head, and not unnaturally his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. We're speaking about things that frankly are of the nature of God. We can only understand so much. Wayne Grudem, quote, Affirming the doctrine of election does not mean that our choices choices don't matter and our actions don't have any consequences. Nor does the doctrine of election require us to affirm an impersonal, inflexible universe that is controlled by an impersonal, inflexible force. Close quote. The Bible, many, many, many times, hundreds even, calls us to exercise our ability to make a choice. A voluntary and even willing choice. And yet the Bible also insists that our God is mighty and powerful and all-knowing and all-wise and loving and good and kind. And sovereign. And that is he is in control of all things for his glory first and our good by extension as believers. And these two things seem, seem to be a mystery. And yet it's only a mystery in our perception, but not from God's. And we should be grateful, very grateful for the sovereign plan of God. The Son of Man goes as it is written. That's the sovereign plan of God, to send the Son to the cross to die for us. John seventeen twenty four, Christ, in praying to the Father, says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, note, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Our election as believers in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world is through the Lamb predestined to be slain before the foundation of the world. And woe to the one who chooses to reject Christ. Woe to the one who chooses to not repent of their sin. Hell is as if It was better for you not to have been born. It is not a light and trivial matter. And we make choices every day that we will have to answer to. And yet we also see in the gospel this morning that the blood of Jesus Christ is offered freely for those who will take it. This is the the son of man. This is the second Adam. This is the perfect Adam. The first was imperfect. We're all born of Adam's race. And yet we have the ability through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to have his attributes, 
His perfection is granted to us. His righteousness is given to us. His blood atones for our sins. It's a free gift. All one must do is accept it and repent. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is the one who is serving this Passover meal. We glory that the Son of Man came and went as written. We have no hope if this did not happen. And yet for those in Christ, we have all the hope in the world. So how about you this morning? Have you repented of your sin and recognized that you cannot pay for your sin? That Christ alone is the only one who can pay for it? Will you accept his free gift of payment for your sin? Talk to me. Talk to someone in the pew. We would love to share more with you. Well, more can be said and probably even should be said about this first point, but our journey will now continue to point number two, verse 22 through 25. And this is, this is us pulling up to the Grand Canyon, as it were. Point number two, the Lord's Last Supper. Here, Christ is taking what hundreds of years, hundreds of years of celebration and he is ending it. By inaugurating a new institution for the people of God, the church, the Lord's Supper. The perfect Passover lamb is sitting in the room serving the Passover lamb, little L. The perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, is within, is within just hours of giving himself for the people who will repent of their ways and place themselves under the blood of Christ. He, he's, he's, Right at the door of shedding his blood and and placing it over the head of every person who will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. As that lamb was slain and then placed upon the door in order that the angel of judgment might pass over in Exodus 12. Here Christ is preparing now to shed once and for all the blood. To atone for the sins of many. The perfect blood was about to be spilt. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Here in verse 22 through 25. Christ is ordaining one of the two ordinances. He's instituting one of the two ordinances for the church, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are no more and no less than visible portrayals of the gospel. Only these two, out of all the many commands of Christ, are the clearest pictures of the gospel. And therefore the church, in obedience to Christ, is to observe these two things. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ordinances is where the gospel is made visible in the church and to the world around us. The gospel is about Christ's death for sinners, thus making a way for an imperfect people to have a relationship with a perfect God. And so the ordinances should never be more important than the gospel because they're simply visible signs of the gospel. So when a believer is baptized... When they publicly declare their allegiance to Christ, they're declaring as a believer, as they, as they are buried with Christ in baptism, as they go underneath the water, 
Then they are raised to walk. They come out of the water, raised to walk in newness of life. So baptism is where one believer joins to the many believers, the church. And the many are observing the public testimony of the transforming power of the gospel. Now, if the one in baptism joins to the many at the table, the Lord's table, it's where the many gather as the body of Christ and remind one another of the oneness that we have with each other and Christ through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. So notice in verse 22, Christ connects his body with the bread. Take, this is my body. And the wonder is not on the breaking of the bread, but on the distribution of the bread. Certainly Christ's body was broken for us, but more importantly, his perfection was distributed to us. His perfection was handed out to all those who will repent and believe. And next he he gives out the cup. This cup being the sign of the new covenant we know from Luke 22. And it's closely connected with Exodus as well. In Exodus 24, listen to verse 8 and 9. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And notice the blood covenant, the old blood covenant, there in Exodus, was also associated with a meal. Here again, the new covenant through the blood of Christ is associated with a meal. Taking the cup is a reminder of the new covenant God has with us, with his people through the once and for all shed blood of Jesus as the atonement for many. This is the, this is the promised new covenant. This isn't, this isn't just another meal. That's what I said. Hundreds, if not thousands of times this had been done. But this was the fulfillment of so much. Jeremiah 31 through 31 and 31 and 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Here it is. Mark. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Notice. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Lord's Supper is not something that the church just came up with. It was instituted by Jesus. And in obedience to Jesus Christ, believers should regularly participate with the gathered church as a reminder of what he has done for us and in anticipation of our fellowship to come eternally. This is one of the reasons why when I talk to new members, one of the things I encourage them on is, if you can't make any other service in the month, strive to be at the first Sunday of the month when we take the Lord's table together. 
take the Lord's table together. It's when the, the Passover lamb that has come and served himself for us once and for all, that's where we commemorate it. That's where we commemorate the relationship that we have with one another. That's where we are to commemorate the, that, that, that serving that he has done for us. And we're to do that regularly until he comes again. The lamb was slain once. The elements are simply pictures. We take the supper as repentant people under the blood of Christ. The table is served in the shadow of the cross. The table is always served by the perfect son, Jesus, to imperfect sons. We will never take the table absent from many failures. The table is served to the family of God, not the families of men. That's another radical part of this passage. You will always take the table, the the supper, the Passover with the family. And here Christ is taking it not with the physical family, but the spiritual one. The table is served by the church to the congregated church family. The table recalls the past. It reminds us of our present and renews our hope in the future to come. The table, brothers and sisters, is a meal. That's what it is. It's a meal. It's, It's meant... To give us nourishment. So consider what we gain from regularly eating the Lord's Supper. We gain nourishment, refreshment, strength, fellowship, recovery, renewal, restoration. All of these things at the meal gives us faith to press forward in faithfulness to that great day to come. That's why this passage is arguing for us that the wonder of Jesus Christ for us then, now, and to come is to be regularly enjoyed or we might say regularly seen at the Lord's table. The Lord's table is simply a gospel picture. It reflects on the past, what he's done for us at the cross. It reminds us today of the blood that was shed at the cross for us, even today, and it anticipates the future. Look at verse 25 with me as we close here. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Remember I said at the very beginning, there were four cups that were taken during the Passover meal. By the time we get to verse 25, three cups have been drunk. If we combine the gospel narratives, we can understand that. The fourth cup, Christ does not drink. In essence, this Passover meal, this Last Supper, was never concluded. In Exodus 6, 6 and 7, we hear, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and this is what cup number one would represent. I will bring you out... Cup number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Cup number two, I will deliver you from slavery. Cup number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And cup number four, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Christ had one more cup to drink after this meal, and he drank it on the cross. The bitter cup of divine wrath given to him by the Father. He would drink that cup, that cup of of bitterness, 
upon the cross. His blood absorbed the righteous wrath of God the Father to purchase the hope we now see spiritually but will one day behold visibly. God taking us to be his people in heaven forever. You see, the fourth cup not taken is really an anticipation of a future feast. Verse 25, when that kingdom comes again and he will drink the fourth cup with us. When he will take us to be his people with him forever. Listen as I read Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Note this future feast. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, we have arrived at the end of the journey. We have observed beauty along the way, but we have seen the glory at the end. And yet the question remains, are we there yet? No. No, not quite. The real glory of heaven awaits us. The majesty of the marriage supper of the Lamb is like the fragrance of a home-cooked meal just down the street. May we appreciate the beauty of the journey this week. And yet... May we always do so with the glory of what's to come in mind. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, the depth and the wonder of the riches of your love for us, that you would elect your perfect Son to die for imperfect men. And what a picture we have seen this morning of your blood spilt for us to redeem us from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be your people. And yet what a hope and anticipation we see in this picture this morning. Father, what a joy it is as a church to be able to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. To not just remind ourselves of the shed blood of Christ for us. To not just remind ourselves of the sufficiency of that blood for us today in our sin, but to anticipate a coming feast, a coming meal prepared for us by you, our God and Father, that is better than we can possibly imagine and will never end. Oh, Father, we rejoice to know that we stand today under that shed blood. And we long for that feast to come. We ask, Father, that your Son might come soon. And yet, Father, may these passages of Scripture, even that we've read this, even as we've read this morning, be that which fuels our faith for faithfulness while we await the future coming. 
We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus for your glory alone. Amen. Let's stand and sing, see the destined day arise.